the optimal life. Cleveland Magazine story. Yes. And uh, that was written by, was it Rebecca Miser? Yes. Um, really powerful article. And um really happy that you're taking the time to come in and discuss this story of yours because it's, you know, a lot of people get thrown adversities in life. And yes. then there's somebody like you who gets thrown more than, I don't know what the word is, but it's, it's <laughs> adversity on top of adversity on top. Of yes. That. Yes, it is. And uh, so I wanted to, I love getting into the details with somebody like you who seems to be so resilient and the mindset and the mentality and the emotional state, the way that you're able to get through and, mm-hmm. and get through those, those dark times. So back at, you were living in Alaska. Yes. You were married at the time. This goes back to like the, what, 2005 timeframe? Yes. Okay. And then your first daughter comes at what, 2008? Yes. No, no, no. Ava was, that was the second. That was Stella. So Ava was born in 2005 in Florida. And then we moved to Alaska and Stella Rose was born in 2008. Okay. So 2005. Wow. So your daughter's already 17. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So your daughter, your first daughter is born and take us back to that day. The doctors come in, they tell you that there's something with the fluid in the ears. Take us back to that, that moment. Yes. So I, at that point in time, you know, being a new mom, I didn't really think anything of it. It was a hard labor. They told me not to worry about it. A lot of newborns fail their hearing test. So we really didn't think much of it. Even when we left the hospital, they asked us to follow up with the audiologist. And I think our appointment was probably a few months later. I think she was like two or three months old by the time we actually went into the audiologist. Um, And I mean, I was shocked when we found out that she was completely deaf because you don't, she didn't seem like she couldn't hear to me, but I think, you know, all of her other senses, she would feel the vibration and kind of turn her head or we would open the door and the light would come in and she would turn to what I thought, you know, was sound, but it wasn't. So that was really shocking. So you have, you have your firstborn child. Life is going on as normal. First couple months. Yes. They tell you that she had fluid in her ears, didn't pass the hearing test, but okay, it was probably just fluid. They, they, they slough it off. Yes. You think everything's normal. Then you, there. What, what triggered you to go to an audiologist? Well, the hospital does tell you to follow up. So if any baby fails their newborn hearing screening, you are supposed to follow up with an audiologist. So we were just kind of going through the motions of doing what we were told to do. I really did not expect anything to be wrong. I thought we would probably go in there and they would say, oh, everything's fine. Now, you know, this happens, blah, blah, blah. Go about your business with your new baby. Right. And then, of of course, instead of hearing that, you hear something that you probably can't even comprehend. Your baby is essentially deaf. Yes. She had profound hearing loss in both ears, meaning that maybe she would have been able to hear like a big jet airplane taking off on a runway. So, I mean, essentially like nothing. And I remember her telling us all of these things and it was kind of like I was hearing her, but I wasn't really comprehending what she was saying. Cause I had, it was just blindsided. You know what I mean? I had no idea yes. what it entailed, what we could do for her, anything. So that took a little while to kind of digest. 
you get into the car and you just break down probably. You know, I did. I always used to talk to her when I was in the car. And I think that's kind of when it finally hit me with what the audiologist said. She had started crying in the back seat. And I immediately said, oh, you know, Ava, it's okay. You're fine. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, she can't hear me. She doesn't feel comforted by my voice. So I remember reaching my hand as far back as I could. I had like a little two-seater Cavalier at the time. And I could barely get like my pinky finger into her mouth. And so she kind of started sucking on my finger and she calmed down. And it was kind of like from that point on, I just realized how important, you know, like touch and her seeing me. And then I kind of would feel bad leaving her in a room. I mean, a lot of parents do that. They put their baby in the swing and then they go and they do the dishes or they cook dinner and they're still talking to their baby. So that was a hard adjustment for me because I felt like I couldn't do that anymore. Um, so I would constantly kind of like move her swing where she could see me and, you know, just little things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's gotta be so tough and so shocking to the conscious. Like, Holy cow. You start talking to the, this, this child who I love more than my own life. I, she has no idea what I'm saying to her, that I'm even talking and communicating to her. Exactly. So when you're going through those feelings, Anna, especially in the days and weeks that ensued, what, how are you, what, what are you doing to transition? Like, okay. I mean, I can't change the situation. Once yeah. you accept that, what are some of the things that you're doing? I think you kind of started talking about it. But over the next weeks and months to kind of help with, I don't know, to mitigate the, the issue. I am a researcher, so I do better when I know a plan. So that's kind of what I did. I started learning sign language. I started researching. I started learning about, you know, could hearing aids help her? I started learning about what a cochlear implant was. Um, what is a cochlear? What like exactly that. is that? What is a cochlear implant? So, um, as you probably know from the article, so Ava does have bilateral cochlear implants. So what it does is it, it's essentially a surgery where they go in and they put, um, like a little snail shaped electrodes into the cochlear or the cochlea. And, um, it kind of bypasses the damaged parts of the ear. So it directly stimulates the auditory nerve and it kind of allows you to hear, but it's not something that, you know, you turn on day one and you hear like you and I do. It's kind of a lot of like someone described it to me once as like little like beeps and signals. And then over time through therapy, the people can kind of learn to hear in a different way. So mm. obviously that's the route that we ended up taking. How old was she when you got the implants? Um, She was one when we got her first one and she was three when we got her second one. Now they don't do them one at a time. They do them both at the same time. But back okay. then it was considered an elective surgery, like a, like almost like a cosmetic surgery, like, Oh, you only need one year. So they would only do one. So it's different now. So the first year, what are the, some of the other things, somebody that's, that's, in this unfortunate situation, what are some mm -hmm. of the things these parents can do in that first year before the implant to make the baby, make the, the baby feel more connected, I guess. 
You know, I think the biggest piece of advice I would give is that the baby doesn't know any different. So you don't want to place your own fears on them. Um, her dad had told me at one point in time when we had found out she couldn't hear and we were transitioning her from our bedroom to her crib, I left the light on in the room. And he said to me, why are you leaving the light on? And I said, well, she can't hear. If we turn the light off, she's not going to be able to see. And that is so scary. And he said, she doesn't know any better. You're instilling your own fears onto her and we're not going to do that. And he turned her light off and he shut the door. And at first I was kind of annoyed thinking like, I can't leave her in there. You know what I mean? But it was probably the best piece of advice that he could have done. And he was adamant about it. And that's kind of the way that we approached it from then on. Like she was a really happy baby. She was a happy toddler. So it was, you know, she didn't know any different. Right. That's great so, advice. That's great advice. Yeah. We, we do. We, we, we want to equate our own fears and our own situations as adults and throw them exactly. on this child that has no clue the difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. So were you nervous about having your second daughter because of what you guys had gone through after the first um, couple of years? You would think that we would have been, but at that point in time, there was no genetic testing done for Ava. We assumed it was just a fluke thing. Um, so we had talked about that, you know, what if we have another baby that can't hear? And by the time I was pregnant with Stella, it just wasn't as scary anymore. So I remember saying, you know, if she is, she is, and it, it wouldn't be as big of a deal because we're so much more knowledgeable now we know, but I still really didn't think it would happen again. Right. And, and they're about what, two and a half, three years apart. Something. They're two, yeah. Two and a half. Yeah. Two and a half years. So, um, so here we go again, you and your husband, you're going for your second, you're pregnant, obviously here it comes. It's time for to, to go to the hospital. You deliver yeah. everything seems fine. And then yeah. <laughs> take us back, take us back to the, the nurses come in and they give your baby, like they do everyone else, a, a hearing yeah. test. And, and yeah. what do they come in and, and what happens? They said the same thing. And at that point, the same in time, thing, just- the same thing, meaning. Fluid. Oh, there's probably fluid in her ear. Your, your blah, daughter, blah, blah. your daughter, your daughter failed the hearing test. Yes. Yes. And you and your husband, and they said there's probably fluid in the ears and you guys look at each other. And you know, we kind of just laughed as weird as that sounds because I thought, okay. And I just knew, like, I just knew I said, you know what, she's going to have the same thing. But it wasn't the like devastation and like the overwhelming thing like it was the first time. It wasn't as scary to you because you guys had been there before. Yeah, exactly. So we just kind of went through the motions. Things happened a lot quicker with Stella because we knew who to call. We had doctors in place. We had therapy set up for Ava already. So we kind of knew what to expect. And you're still in Alaska at this point. Um, Yes. Okay. Yep. So now you have two daughters. Both of them cannot hear. Obviously, it's a genetic thing, of course, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. And and that's not something that they can test for until the baby's born. Yes. It's not something that you could test for like in utero or anything like that. Okay. 
So you guys go, oh my, here we go again. We got to start this this whole process. Oh, how do you, what's the emotional state like between you and your husband and the family unit? Like, how are you handling um, all that? You know, the hardest part was that, you know, he was in the military at the time. So we were far away from family. So we did not have that family support. And when you have two little kids, two babies, essentially um, in Alaska, it's cold. There's a lot of doctor's appointments. There's a lot of therapy appointments and things like that. Um, so that was a lot to manage. Luckily for us, we had some amazing neighbors um, that really became family. We had members of my husband's squadron that were really, really helpful. So we did have a good support system, but it was really isolating for me. I mean, my husband was gone a lot at the time. So it was essentially kind of me making all of these. I mean, he was helping in the decisions and things like that, but it was kind of like me in charge of all of that kind of stuff. So it was a lot. Yeah. It had to be extremely taxing because raising children that are normal and in a healthy state is extremely taxing. <laughs> and yeah. you've got two little girls at home that can't hear you. Yes. Uh, which is, so you learn sign language. You're communicating through sign language at this point. Yes. Okay. And um, that's kind of a controversial thing. A lot of parents that get cochlear implants for their kids, they um, are kind of cautioned not to use sign because if you're getting a cochlear implant, it's obvious that you want your child to be speaking. And so sometimes I think, I don't know, there's people that think maybe sign ling language might hinder that. I didn't. I wanted a way to communicate with my child anyways. It's not a guarantee the cochlear is going to work. For us, it was helpful because by the time they started talking, they already knew the sign for the word that they were trying to say. So to me, it was helpful in the process to do that. Um, but like what I said, what was that like for you when your daughters are able to start actually talking? That has to be a, a, a shocking, like a, a crazy feeling for you. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was the coolest thing because you just never know. I mean, you take them for these appointments and they're saying, oh, you know, all the things look good. The electrodes look good, but they're still not doing anything. So it's just a lot of just talking all the time. So when they did finally say their first word and start talking, which happened really, really fast. I mean, it was so cool and so exciting. Mm, wow. How old were they uh, <laughs> roughly? Um, they each said their first word four months after their cochlear was turned on. Oh, so like around 16 months, <laughs> plus or minus. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yep. Uh, thank God for, for medicine and technology in certain areas. It's I know. It is wild. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you're dealing with this and extremely challenging of course i i nobody could appreciate the challenges unless they've gone through what you've gone through so you're living yeah. in this challenging environment your husband's in the air force he's not not around all the time yeah. he's on different missions and whatever else he's doing <laughs> yep and then all of a sudden what your daughter oldest daughter was around five yes and your youngest is around three years old almost two and a half three yeah um and all and, and you get a phone call um, yes, I got a phone call. It was a night. There was, they, when they, he was a pilot, my husband was a pilot. So they had night flying sometimes. So it was late at night, probably like 1030 when he should have been home and he wasn't, but I, 
I didn't really worry because they were always running late or behind or so I didn't think much of it. I got a phone call from the squadron commander who very seriously said, I'm on my way to your house and hung up the phone, which is like, you know, something is really, really wrong. So I am when he hung up the phone. Let me ask you. Sorry to interrupt you, but Uh let me ask you. He hangs up the phone. You hear this weird. You get this strange call. Your husband's nowhere to be found. Did you know at that moment? I no, I don't think I knew, but I knew something was really wrong. Okay. You know what I mean? I knew whatever I was about to find out was not good. Okay. Um, so I immediately text my husband. I don't know why, you know what I mean? Shoot him a text. Mm-hmm. I call one of my girlfriends um, whose husband was also in the squadron. And I tell her, Hey, the commander's coming to my house. She knows the lingo. She hangs up. She says, I'm on my way. So she's on her way there. So then of course the knock comes at the door a couple minutes later. And at that point, you know, that's kind of like the scene in the movie that you see that you don't ever think is going to be real where you've got the commander and his, uniform his wife was with him and at that point I think I did know you know what I mean without them even saying anything um but at that point in time they didn't know where he was so it wasn't they just said we can't find Jeff's plane so for me, of course, you know, you go into that mode that like, maybe there's a chance that things are okay. Um, and why isn't there a beacon on the plane? There's supposed to be something going off to let you know what's going on, like who just disappears out of the sky. So that was one of those things where I think that there was hope there that maybe he was okay, but also like internally you kind of know that that's not going to be the case in a situation like this. Um, but it was, I think probably two full days before they confirmed that, you know, he did go down with the airplane. He did not eject. Um, so that was a long kind of waiting period there where they didn't know what, you know what I mean? In those 48 hours, what's an emotional state when somebody's in that, in that place where you can't find a loved one and uh, you know, deep down in your gut and your soul, the odds are 99.999% he's gone. Yeah. But there's that sliver, like you talk about of maybe it's a miracle. What, yeah. what, are, what are those, someone that's in that limbo stage? Cause you hear about people missing family members, uh, kids that are gone missing and, yeah hiking in the in the woods or or someone that's whatever the situation is um and they have like that those those several days was that was it was it emotional or you can't even go there because you have that little sliver of hope you know it was but i think that i just shut down you know how different people act different ways when they're in shock and i think my initial reaction when i opened the door um I remember just immediately sitting on the floor and I probably felt like maybe I couldn't even stand up anymore. But then it was kind of like, I just went into this zone that probably seemed so odd to everybody else because I probably seemed like a really normally functioning human and mom. But I think that like when you hear news like that, especially me having the girls to still take care of, 
I'm trying not to say anything to them because they're so little. We still don't know what's going on. So you just kind of are like in zombie mode, like still doing all the things and, you know, a situation like that too in the military, there's all of a sudden our house is like open for investigation, people coming over, you know, FAA, all this kind of stuff are like in and out all the time. It was kind of like watching my life happen in a movie, but not even realizing that it was like really happening to me. I mean, it was just kind of such a blur point in time. Mm-hmm. But so, but then you get the you get the news after those those couple of days are a blur. Are you able to sleep or no? Um, no, I wasn't, and I did ask for some. I remember I asked the flight doctor for some Ambien or something like that to help me um, sleep for a couple hours because that was not happening at all. It was. Um, are you going into like panic mode because you start thinking to yourself, if my husband's gone, I've got these two beautiful daughters of ours. Yeah. It's been a, a tremendously challenging road of the last five years. Yeah. Now, if my husband's gone, how am I going to survive this life? Like, are you, are you taking, does it, do those thoughts start coming in? Yeah, they did. I mean, I think I had every single thought under the sun come in um, from, you know, being hopeful that they were going to find him and everything was going to be okay to, you know, what am I going to do now if he's not here? I mean, I think it was just every single thing kind of all at once, you know, you think about and Oof. yeah, it was a very like emotional whirlwind of time that just and then, seemed and like then, it was and then going... a couple of days into it, they finally confirmed that he's deceased. Yes. What What's that moment then for you? Um, that was just, you know, I don't even really know how to describe it in one way as weird as it sounds, you're just so thankful to finally have like a concrete answer because I think not knowing anything sometimes is you can't move. You can't do anything when you don't know anything. You know what I mean? You can't even start the process of what are the next steps look like until you know exactly what's going on. So in that way, it was almost a relief to say, okay, we have an answer now. We're not in limbo. But I mean, obviously it just seemed so surreal and like it wasn't really happening. And I kept thinking like, how can this be happening? Like, didn't we have enough curveballs already? Like with the girls and stuff like this, like, why is this happening to us? That, that had to be the saddest day of your life getting that news. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Your husband is is deceased. The, the plane went down. You're now a single mom. You're widowed. Two little girls. Both of them came yeah. out here. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, it was very overwhelming. And I mean, I, I probably did have more pity parties than I should have thinking like, why me? Like, why do I deserve this? And I remember a couple people trying to be nice told me, you know, God only gives you what you can handle. And I remember thinking like, well, <laughs> I think I, I think I've been given enough. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, right. I don't, I don't know. It just seemed really unfair. Um, yeah, it does. But it really does. Yeah. It, I mean, it, then you just think like, okay, I mean, 
I still have these two kids that I have to take care of. And so I think that was kind of what helped me move forward. I mean, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have them to take care of. I may have been the person, you know, taking sleeping pills all day long and never leaving my bedroom and, you know, gaining 200 pounds, I mean, and not doing anything and going into like a state of depression. But I think that, you know, because of them, I mean, I couldn't do that. You know what I mean? You could get the worst news in the world, but your kids are still waking up at night. They still need breakfast. They still need a routine. So in a way, as hard as that was, I think it was helpful. You know what I mean? To just know that I still had to be there for them and I had to get myself up and I had to do everything that they needed. Losing a loved one so abruptly, completely unexpected like you have. Look, Looking back, what was the most challenging thing for you to handle? Um, I don't know if I could pick one thing. I know initially it was knowing, okay, we were a military family. We were used to moving every three years. Our life kind of revolved around his job. And now we don't have that anymore. So I was thinking I get to pick, like, where are we going to go? Where are we going to plant roots? Like all of these things. So that part moving the girls, you know, 4,000 miles to Ohio by myself, buying a house, getting all new doctors, all new school, that kind of thing to do that on my own. That was like, extremely challenging. I had a a lot of help, you know what I mean? But at the end, it was kind of all on me too. But it was also one of those things that once it was accomplished, I felt really like empowered in a way because Jeff and I had very traditional roles as a married couple. We just did. It wasn't like, it's just kind of like, you know, the, the kids and the house and the meals fell under my umbrella He took care of all the finances and, you know, the yard work and that kind of stuff. Um, So I never really had to do any of those things. And I never really wanted to do any of those things, but to realize that I could. And I remember standing in our new house going, you know what? I bought this house all by myself. I got these kids here. We're all set up. We've got all these things. Like I can do this. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to be okay. How long was that after he had passed? When did you, how many months or years was that? Um, We moved three months after. Three months. Three months. Okay. Three months yep. after you pick up from Alaska and you move back here to Ohio. Yeah. That's where your family is. Your family's in this area, correct? Well, I grew up in Michigan, but now my family is all here. I chose Ohio um, to be closer to my sister. Because she lived here. She was a stay-at-home mom of three boys at the time. And then since then, my parents have moved here also. So we're all near each other. That's that's, got to be extremely helpful. Um, Oh, yeah. But when I say most challenging, obviously logistics is at the top of the list. But when you look back, when that happens and you have to come to grips, holy cow, I'm never going to see this man who I love forever again. It's over. It's done. 
do you yeah what 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 is it like do you do you are there is there regret that that maybe i mean do you start feeling bad i should we shouldn't have gotten this fight i i wish i could say this to him i wish i could have just told him this did you have any of those thoughts you know it's funny and i think that maybe this is the one thing that was really helpful to me because i know other people in his life did have regrets and i think that they had a much harder time coming to terms with it i had I mean, I can honestly say I have no regrets about our time together. He was always so kind and super helpful and very involved when he was there. We did not argue. You know what I mean? There wasn't anything that I felt bad about. Um, So I didn't have those regrets, which I think was really helpful in like the healing process But I mean, yeah, as far as the most difficult time, I mean, you just, you know, you lost your other person. You have no one to ask an opinion on anymore or as far as parenting goes, you know what I mean? I might think I'm a great mom, but at the end of the day, when you have your spouse or your partner kind of saying, oh yeah, yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. Or I really like this doctor. I don't, you know, you don't have anybody that you trust like that. Um, So that part made me feel really alone. You know Mm. what I mean? Like not just make knowing that like I have to be confident in the decisions that I'm making and I don't have anybody else to let me know that I'm making good choices or that I'm doing the right thing. Did you ever feel his energies, spirit? Did you ever feel like he came back to visit you guys? Um, you know, I, I did one time, I felt that a couple of days after we heard the news, but that is it. And I did say one thing to him while he was alive. And now I regret it because we were laughing about what would happen if, or who, if one of us died. And I told him, I said, if you die first, you better not come back and show, like, see me because it will freak me out. I'm like, you cannot do that. And now I'm afterwards, I kind of laugh thinking, well, darn, I shouldn't have told him that because I would love to have him come visit me. But um, he has appeared to and come to visit my daughters. And how so? And he, what, what have they seen? Well, he always used to say that children are more susceptible and open to that kind of thing because they don't have fear. He always used to say that because how he he believed in that kind of a thing or, you know, people that might see loved ones or things like that. So they have a couple times, a few times when they were younger. Like I remember Stella Rose, when we first moved into this house, she was sitting at, a, at the island in our table and in our kitchen. And she was probably three and a half. I mean, little. And she kept moving her side like this, like somebody was tickling her and laughing and I wasn't doing anything. She was eating lunch. And so I finally said, Stella, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm laughing at tickles. And I'm like, who's tickling you? And she said, daddy. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And so I didn't want to seem shocked or anything. So I kept like the same tone of voice I have now. And I said, Oh, um, he's tickling you. And she said, yeah. And then she stopped. And I said, well, where, I said, where did he go? And she said, oh, he, he went behind the refrigerator. 
And I said, oh, so he's not there anymore. And she said, no. And I didn't want to press her. And next thing you know, she looked at me and she was like, can I watch My Little Pony? And I'm <laughs> like, okay. And she was on to the next thing. And um, then another time up in her room, she was probably maybe five. It The windows had frosted over and I had come up to see her in the morning. And you know how you can write in the frost? Mm-hmm. So there was a cross of like, it looked like somebody had taken their finger and made a cross, but she was still in her bed. And um, so I had the monitor on and I knew she wasn't up because I just heard her start talking. And so I went up there to go get her and I said, oh, what's this? And she said, I, um, I heard daddy last night. And I said, did you see him? She said, no, I just heard his voice. And I said, well, from, from where? And she's like, right in the middle of that thing. And she pointed to the cross on her window. And I thought, oh my gosh, like no, no five-year-old is going to make that up. You know what I mean? So to me, it was kind of like mind blowing. And then my older one has um, felt his presence in this house before she has as crazy as this sounds, she has seen the outline of him in her room. And then there was a long period of time where there was nothing. And then just last year, my oldest um, was part of the drama club for her high school. And so we were at her play and we were all, you know, watching. And at the end, Stella kind of looked funny to me. And I said, what is going on? And the next, the next day she finally told me, she said, I didn't want to say anything, but she said, um, dad was there watching Ava's play. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I saw him against the black, um, in his flight suit. And she immediately told Ava, my oldest, who is not emotional at all. The second she told her Ava started crying Then they were both upstairs in Ava's room and it was the first time that they had experienced something like simultaneously where they both said, dad was in our doorway and he just said, hi. And they both kind of told me this and that it's funny because I never said anything to either one of them about these little experiences when they were younger. And they had never talked about it to each other. So just a year ago was the first time that they experienced something together. And they shared the stories of things that had happened in the past. And neither one of them knew that the other one had ever had anything like that happen. So that gives, it was that gives me so of, much. That gives me so much hope, Anna. That really it was does. really, yeah, it was really cool. And I know not everybody believes in that kind of thing. And like I said, it's not happened to me personally, but I mean, I've seen it with my own two eyes. And like, I know that seeing the emotion on their faces talking about it, you know, tells me that it was real. And so it's kind of cool, you know, and it's unexplainable, but it's a yeah. nice feeling to know that they know that some way or another he's still watching out for them. So still I don't there. know. I think yeah. it's cool. Yeah. yeah. Was it hard for you to open your heart after being widowed so abruptly, especially, was it hard for you to open up again and, and, and really let yourself fall in love? Cause I know you are remarried, correct? Um, yes, I did meet somebody. Um, we have a 
son together, Vinny. So the girls have a little brother. Um, At the beginning, though, was how that had to be a very strange thing. It was. And I think I, I remember initially saying, you know, I'll never be in another relationship. I'll never be married again. But realistically, like, I mean, I was 31 when Jeff died. So I, I knew better. I'm like, okay, it's probably going to happen at some point. You know what I mean? Like I'm young. Nobody wants to be alone. You know what I mean? But I just, I was not ready, nor was I thinking about it. However, when you're a young widow, that's what everybody wants to do. Everybody wants to find you somebody else. So it was kind of one of those things where I had so many people, Oh, I have this guy I want to set you up with. I have this guy. And I was just, I, I wanted nothing to do with it. I was so just involved in our new life and the girls and stuff like that. I thought, you know what? I don't even want to go there. So, mm. but it ended up my randomly, my sister and I were out to lunch and she sees this guy who she thinks is cute. And I thought he was cute too. It was like a year after Jeff passed. So she's like, oh my gosh, you know, you think he's cute, blah, blah, blah. My sister's a matchmaker. She's got like three weddings under her belt. So I leave. Well, she goes and like tracks this guy down and asked him if he saw me, gets his phone number, all this kind of stuff. And I think she was annoyed with me because I had no friends. I did nothing but exercise and I would go down to her house for dinner all the time. So like, that's mm-hmm. all we did. I would go over there and I would eat. And she's like, you need to go out. Like you need to put on a dress, stop being a mom for two hours, go have like a martini. And like, even if it's not with Mr. Right, even if it's with Mr. Right now, then just go and right, do something right. like as an adult. So finally I did, like we went out on a date, we had a drink and then surprisingly enough, I mean, it just kind of like we kept dating and it just kind of feel slowly... like you were cheating on Jeff at the beginning. You know, it was the weirdest thing being out on a date after being married for eight years and having two kids. It was, yeah, in a way, yes. In another way, it was one of those out of body experiences where I was thinking like, this is not me. I'm not out on a date. Then I got mad. I'm like, why am I out on a date? I shouldn't be out on a date. I've done this in the past. This sucks. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be dating. But in another way, it was kind of exciting. You know what I mean? So I had all these mixed emotions going on where it's like, part of you feels guilty. You feel guilty, um, right? Yeah. mm -hmm. And yeah, I remember thinking to myself, well, I'll know if I'm ready for this? Like, what if, what if another man kisses me? And I thought, you know, if I feel guilty about it, then I'll know that it's not the right time. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But it was one of those things that just kind of happened gradually, you know, and then I didn't think it would work out at all. I mean, this guy was way younger than me. He'd never been married, didn't have any kids. So when I finally, you know, introduced him to the kids, I thought, oh, you know what? This is not, this is like way too much. And your son, the boy that you guys have together, he does not have the same hearing issue. Is that correct? No, no, he doesn't. doesn't. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's mm -hmm. gotta be a whirlwind of emotions. It's probably hard to really explain it. It is. It is. It was, 
it was just weird, but good. And you know what I mean? Just kind of all those things all at the same time when you're doing something that you never thought that you would be doing. So it's gotta be, it's gotta be hard, hard to comprehend. Yeah. Um, so we're getting closer to finishing up, but yeah. I, again, people that have been listening to us for the last 35 or 40 minutes, whatever, they, they, they realize they're all thinking the same thing to themselves. Holy cow. This woman is really resilient. I, I respect this woman who I don't know, most likely who's listening, mm-hmm. but she's somebody who's resilient. Who's the way you've handled life. The way you've handled these challenges is, is very admirable. And then on top of all of it, Speaking of these challenges, as if you didn't have enough, you ultimately find out that your daughters, not only obviously they can't hear, but now you find out at some point as they're getting older, that they're going to ultimately lose their sight as well. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? Yeah, That happened. Um, I was researching because their balance was really, really bad when they were younger. And everyone told me it's the equilibrium from the hearing and after a while, I just thought like they would be sitting at the dining room table eating dinner. And if they looked too quickly, they would fall off their chair. Like the mm. balance was like extreme. And um, so, but I'd had their eyes checked because I thought about that before. I thought, you know, I want to make sure everything's okay with their eyes. And their their vision was always perfect and nobody said anything to me about it. And then one day I found Usher syndrome profound hearing loss, balance issues, which eventually leads to vision loss. And I thought, you know what? This is, I think this is what they have. And no doctor told you that you went back to your researching self again. No, no doctor yes. gave you this information. No, nope. And um, so lo and behold, I mean, we ended up getting, going to a retinol specialist getting, you know, a lot of imaging and stuff done. We ended up doing a genetic testing and confirmed that that is what it is. And it's genetic. So obviously I'm a carrier. Jeff was a carrier and it just so happened that we got together and both of the girls have this. So that was another. How old were were they when you found this out? Um, I want to say it was probably maybe a year and a half after we moved from Alaska to Ohio. Oh, wow. So you've known about this for a while now. Okay. Yeah. We have known about it for a while. However, um, the vision loss part is progressive, so it's different for everybody. Um, they do have vision loss. It starts usher syndrome starts with peripheral vision. So it's kind of like this. So their central vision is still really good. They do have peripheral loss. Um, we do a lot of, I mean, there's not, there's not a cure for the vision part. So we do our best to try to fundraise and things like that. There's a lot of things out there that look promising, um, but there's nothing concrete yet. So with that, that one's a scary one because, you know, you never know, like every time we go in every year to get imaging, I'm crossing my fingers. I'm anxious are they going to have a lot of vision loss? Are they going to be stable? What's going to be happening? So every case is different. There are some people that lose vision very quickly. There are some people that don't, it goes really, really slow. Um, So our hope, you know, is just for the scientific research to kind of 
get funded as much as it needs to get funded to have all of these um, things that they've got going on, all of these trials and things like that. So yeah, that one because you're, you're uh, one. that's 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 really crushing. I mean, your girls, your girls talk. They communicate, obviously. And they can yeah, talk. you would never know they were deaf. They talk like you and I. Like if they their hair like is covering their cochlears, um, you would have absolutely no idea. So they are fully function functioning now. Yeah, but a lot of that too is that they're able to read lips. I assume. I assume that they're able to see expressions. They can kind of that probably yeah. Helps. Yeah, they are really good lip readers. I mean, they take their cochlears off in the water and at night. So if I come in and they don't have their cochlears on, they can usually read my lips. Or like if they're playing in the pool with each other, they can usually still talk. Um, right. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is that when they lose the vision, mm -hmm. God forbid, that's going to make things more challenging for them than again. It is. And I mean, that is a really scary thing to think about. You know yeah. what I mean? So we don't dwell on it, but we talk about it as we need to with whatever challenges are coming up like for instance driving mm. you know right now um the eye doctor said you know Ava can get her license if she wants to as long as she passes the vision part which she probably would pass the vision part with her glasses on but a lot of that's going to be on me because she, they don't see well at night you know what I mean? They've got more like night blindness already. So she would probably have restrictions. You know what I mean? As far as driving in the dark, how is her peripheral vision going to be? They're used to looking like this, you know what I mean? And making mm. up for what they lack. But that's scary. Do I want her to have that independence? Absolutely. Are we going to have to really monitor that? And so is she if things start to get worse? You know, and then you get a kid that has her driver's license. What happens like right now when it's dark super early and then she has a job? Okay, well, you could drive to your job, but you can't drive home from your job. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of things like that um, that are yeah. hard. Absolutely. You know what I mean? But your girls, your girls are vibrant. They're in, they're in school. They're in high school. They What, what, yeah. what do they want to do? They want to go off to college? They do. Um my oldest, she got, Ava got her first job, um, like a year ago at a pet store and she loves it. And she's always loved animals. She has a parrot. She's really into her critters and her animals. So she right now thinks that she might want to go to vet school. Um, mm. she's also really creative. She likes, um, her behind the scenes drama, like sewing, makeup, stuff like that. She's very smart. Um, she does have plans to go to college. I mean, she's a junior. So that's what we're going to start doing is probably taking some visits and kind of seeing what she wants to do. And Stella Rose, she's a go getter. She wants to be rich. <laughs> and that's a good, I, that's a good plan. <laughs> I think she will be. I mean, mm -hmm. she's very, Stella's very much like her dad was in school. She is a really, really determined human, like more so than anyone I've ever met. She's very diligent, like with her studies and what she wants to do and how successful she's going to be. So that's beautiful. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. They're both. That's really They're great. both doing well. So uh, we mentioned the Cleveland Magazine article uh, earlier. I guess the most important question from all of this, Anna, is 
what was the number one costume over the last decade? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of funny because I choose the costume based on what I think the kids are going to laugh about or think is funny. So obviously, if you look back at my costumes, you'll see a lot of like Disney characters when they were younger. And then it kind of evolves from there. So yeah, I yeah. Think and that- people are probably like, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, <laughs> Anna, you for the last quite a few years have put on a different costume every year so that you and your girls could have these memories in case yeah. they do lose the, the in case they do lose their vision fully one day they could look back and say hey my mom was lady gaga my mom was kim kardashian yeah etc yeah. Et yeah i mean they always used to ask me to dress up for halloween and i used to always say no halloween was a hard one for them when they had bad balance and they couldn't see in the dark it was like such a chore right. and uh, to be honest with you i hated halloween i did not look forward to it it was so hard to take them trick-or-treating but after the Usher syndrome diagnosis, I thought, you know, what can I start saying yes to? So I thought, I'm just going to be like, I'm going to dress up for them, surprise them when they get off the bus so they never know what I'm going to be. And it just turned into like this fun thing. And even though they're teenagers now, they don't even trick or treat anymore. There was times they were embarrassed of me, but they still <laughs> look forward to it. You know what I mean? Um I think if you were to ask them what their favorite one was, well, Stella would probably say this year's Kim Kardashian. They liked the Lady Gaga one. Ava loved when I was 11 from Stranger Things because that was one of her favorite shows. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they still love it. That's it's great. a super fun tradition. Sometimes I get some slack from people on my costume because they are like, oh, you know, she's not a good role model or you know, <laughs> a mom should. Uh, the oh, lady gosh. I, I assume that you can give two shits with what you've yeah. gone through, what other people say about your costumes. I really don't care. Like the Lady Gaga one was funny because it was a leotard and I had fishnets on. Well, you know, it's like the holidays. So I'm like enjoying myself and eating a bunch of cookies and all kinds of stuff. So I put my Lady Gaga costume on. Well, you know, the bottom part, I'm like, ooh, this, I was smaller when I got measured <laughs> for this costume. Yeah. So I start laughing and I'm thinking, well, whatever, I'm just going to own it. I don't really care. And so we're trick-or-treating out there. But And then my sister, it's funny, she had a couple of comments from some teachers, I think, that worked with her. They were like, oh, we saw this lady with her two kids walking through the neighborhood and she looked like a hooker. <laughs> Yeah. And my sister's like, oh, that that was my sister. She's not a hooker. She's Lady Gaga. And this is the story behind it. Of course, they hear the story and they feel bad. But right. It's another great lesson. Anna. It's a great lesson. It's yeah. We're so judgmental as people. We're so judgmental as a human species. Everything we we see on the surface, we don't take any context what goes into it. And we just see a hooker, mother, young daughters, terrible influence. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I have thick enough skin now that that stuff can roll off my back and it doesn't bother me. And even the article that they wrote in Yahoo Mail or or whatever about the Lady Gaga costume, there was a lot of negative comments. But you know what? The girls and I sat down and I read every single negative comment to them and we laughed about it. And I said, do you think this is bothering me? And they said, no. And I said, does it bother you? And they said, well, you know, sometimes we don't like it when people say bad things about you. And I said, it doesn't matter. I said, 
really like even mother Teresa had haters. You know, I said, this is something that you guys, it just kind of is what it is. So it was a good lesson for them. And I don't really care. You know what I mean? It's fun for them. It makes them laugh. It's a great memory. And it just so happens that I think more people have more to say because now everybody kind of, there's so many people that get excited every year about my costume, which I think is funny. Like how many people actually know about it and want to see what I'm going to be. And most of it's positive. I mean, this year I was surprised because with Kim Kardashian, I was expecting some negative feedback, but I got not one, nothing. There was nothing negative. Well, you didn't have Kanye with you, so it worked out. I know. (laughs) Hey, uh, we're going to link up this Cleveland Magazine article. Again, how one Cleveland mother changed the narrative of Halloween for her daughter's battling Usher syndrome. Where can people go online, if anywhere, if you have anything that a website you want people to go to, or if there's more awareness that can be made, where can we link it up? Um, There is. So we have um, Sisters for Sight, which is a Facebook page that I started to kind of share our journey. Since then, we have linked up with an organization called Save Sight Now, who's basically um, a wonderful set of parents who have a little girl with Usher syndrome type 1B, but he is savvy and techie and super uber smart and has kind of set up a way to funnel all of um, Sisters for Sight donations into specific research for Usher syndrome type 1B. So we've kind of linked up all the stuff that we fundraise for, any money that we have, channels right to Save Sight now. And it goes directly for, you know, funding the best research out there for finding a cure. So I would say those two, our Sisters for Sight is a little bit, it's just our personal story and journey. Save Sight now is a little bit broader and kind of more where you go to make a donation for the scientific research and things like that. Oh, that's perfect. We'll make sure we link it up in the show notes. And I I have to absolutely say thank you to Ryan Miocic for, setting us up and getting yes, us in contact absolutely. with each other. Um, wishing you all the best. Really uh, appreciate your story and, and best wishes to you and your family. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun.